Welcome to another episode of Get Intimate. I'm your host Oliver Wang. How are you, cuties, doing? I'm doing well because I just went to 99 Range, which is an Asian market. Yeah, I went there to purchase some Asian cookies, Asian snacks, because I have been feeling a little hungry for my country's cookies. Yep. I I I'm gonna show you guys some of the Asian cookies that I like on my Instagram, so you guys can check it out. All right, today's guest is Mark Ambender. He is a senior fellow at USC Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism, and he developed a counter disinformation curriculum for USC's Election Cybersecurity Initiative. And before he joined the USC, he has over 20 years of experience in journalism. And recently, he released his audio course on Knowable. It's called Infodemic Claims. Yeah, so basically, the course teaches us how to differentiate real information and misinformation, and what's the difference between misinformation and disinformation. You know, before I interviewed Mark, I was so nervous because I get intimidated by intelligent people really easily, and you know, Mark. He graduated from Harvard, and uh, yeah, I was like, "Oh my God, is Mark going to think I'm smart enough to talk to him? <laughs> I'm a comedian, Mark. I don't have a impressive resume as Mark's. Yeah, I really appreciate Mark for spending time with me. I hope he will give me an A plus." <laughs> All right. Before we start the conversation, I would like to promote our Patreon page. Yes, our Patreon is live. You can find it on Patreon.com/slash Oliver Wong Comedy. Yeah, your support will help us continue this podcast and create more high-quality content for our fans. And depending on the tier levels that you subscribe to, you will have different benefits. Like you can get to participate my monthly Q and A session, or maybe watch bonus video content, or maybe get a shout out from me on my Instagram story. Yep. And also, you may get a virtual one-on-one lap dance from me. Yes, I will dance for you, and we can chat for maybe like thirty minutes. It's like a little, little virtual date. Yeah, definitely consider go on Patreon.com/slash Oliver Wong Comedy. All right, now let's enjoy the conversation with Mark Ambender. This podcast is supported by Visa, Vulnerable International Student Association, an online course that teaches vulnerable international students tips and tricks on how to survive in America. I was once an international student, literally didn't know a thing about America, and had so many confusions and difficulties. It wasn't just an English issue. It was a lot of day-to-day life questions. Where is the nearest Asian market? Do I use Fantran or Uber Eats? What's the difference between Marshalls, Ross, and DD Discount? How do I move in with my American lover? And also follow-up question: Where can I find sugar daddies? Trust me, you want to know the answer. Vulnerable International Student Association is here to provide you with the knowledge that you need to study in the United States of America. We are offering a 200-episode online course covering all topics you want to know as an international student. Now go online to vulnerableinternationalstudentassociation.com to. 
start your one-day trial. The complete course is only $499, class credits are not transferable. Use your promo code OLIVER to get one bonus episode where I share some tips on how to survive in America if you are lactose intolerant. This commercial is created for entertainment purpose only. The product that was advertised does not exist. Let's get into Let's get into it. Let's get into it. Do you remember how we met? <laughs> we met at a club, right? Yes, in West Hollywood. In West Hollywood. I yes. forgot how it's called. Ugh. It was called Chapel. No, it's a, another one. It's the one where Asian men will go a lot. Uh, Rage? Yes, Rage! Yes. Which is out of business now. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, no. It was a, the, yeah, Friday nights, the, the, the Game Boy event is the event that you're talking about. Yeah. They are now in business now? Oh, my God, I'm, I'm so sad. Somebody else, I'm sure, will. Well, but it's not rage. It's yeah. not rage, which which had a, a you know a, a 10, 12 year, or long, much longer actually. I guess fifteen. I don't know what they're fifteen years of, of that Friday night sort of safe space for for Asian, Asian gay men. Yeah. 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 During the pandemic, did you teach over Zoom? Yeah, a little bit. How how did you like the experience? Not good. Not good. Don't don't don't, don't recommend it. It's good for. A seminar, mm-hmm. you know, it's good for a forum. Right. You don't have to pay a zillion dollars to go see a conference. I was listening online to the National Academies of Science has a wonderful day-long session on misinformation with every top expert. And I was listening to it on the way over because you can put it up online. It's on Zoom. That's what Zoom really is for. It's not for teaching. Right. It's not for teaching, and it's really even not for good meetings. It can't be. It just leaves out so many dimensions of the interaction. Mm. So getting back to synchronous in-person learning will be a blessing to teachers. People who like to teach don't like to not be around others. It's just not. Right. When you're in a physical environment, there are just more sensory stimulation and that will actually help your learning. But when you are looking at the computer, it's really like singular dimension. Yeah. It is yeah. distorting and deranging and, and it, it's not a substitute for it. Right. And if it's not a substitute for it at a high level with smart college students, you can imagine how difficult and draining and challenging it is for high school students, elementary school students, and people who have good teachers, but people who don't have good teachers mm. in particular. Because at least if you don't have a good teacher, you know, but you're in a classroom, you can be distracted and at least have some social interaction and develop that way, right? And also, I'm sure you are really technology savvy, but not every teacher is tech savvy. I think some people, some teachers, they might have trouble like using breakout rooms or maybe share screen when they are teaching over Zoom and they just kind of uh, create a more unpleasant learning experience when the teacher is having difficulties with the Zoom. <laughs> it's annoying. Yeah. It's, it's just very annoying. It's yeah. annoying. I mean, at first it's funny, and then it's annoying. Yeah, it's which annoying. Which is usually the course of things that are funny. They become annoying after you see them over and over and over again. Have you seen those uh, videos like high school schoolers, they are maliciously disrupt the teacher when they are on a Zoom call 
like they will take off their shirt or stuff. No, no one has no one yeah. has taken off their shirt on a <laughs> on a on a, an educational or professional Zoom call with me. Is Nine the way college. is the way that I will leave that answer. Yeah. I know you have just released a audio course on Knowable, right? Yes. Yeah, it's called Infodemic Cleanse, and I listen to every episode of your course. And I think it's really a fascinating, interesting lesson on the misinformation and disinformation. So I guess my first question is for our listeners, can you explain the term infodemic? What is it? Some of that is related to the idea. Now, we're all familiar with what a pandemic is. Yeah. Global, distributed, ongoing public health crisis. So we borrow the term because our information, you can call it ecology, but just think about it in very simple terms, how we interact with the world and how we learn things about the world, how we learn what's happening, how we interact with other people, how we debate, how we be social, all mm. of that stuff is being conducted in an environment now where the incentives and the protocols and the technologies are arranged in such a way that make it really difficult to have a constant stream of pleasant, fairly normal, nourishing, flourishing human interactions. And in fact, on a smaller level, this is the proliferation of harmful misinformation mm. online. So uh, in the course, you mentioned there are two terms, misinformation, which you just mentioned, and there's another term, disinformation. Can you elaborate on the difference between the two? Misinformation is, again, simply a, a pattern of false facts mm. that are relevant. Right. I think the way that I'll distinguish it from just saying things that aren't true is it's pattern of information that's wrong, that, that also is relevant, that has some relevance to people's lives. But it doesn't say anything about the motive. Disinformation gets into the realm of the motive behind it. Somebody who deliberately or maliciously spread something they know to be true or we know collectively to be true. So it's like uh, like disinformation is like gossip. Like you want to destroy somebody's reputation and stuff like that. Yeah. Gossip can also be true. Yeah. Oh, um, yeah. So but this, is, this, is, uh, this is three motives. The three motives for disinformation makes the other people miserable. I make money off it. Or it achieves some sort of political or social end that I, you know, sincerely agree with. Mm. And those are the constellation of motives behind disinformation. And the way to distinguish it, misinformation, you don't know somebody's motive. And again, it's impossible sometimes to know that you're spreading it when you're spreading it. Right. Especially if uh, you don't know about a subject that, uh, well, like, I remember at the beginning of this pandemic, there are so many information about how coronavirus works and how it uh, spreads, stuff like that. And I remember I was I, I, I saw an Instagram post and then it was teaching people how to self-diagnose if you have COVID-19. But the post is with beautiful graphics. It looks so real. Even me, I think I'm a pretty decent, intelligent person. I still fell victim to that. I was like, oh, this looks really cool i think it might be true because you have beautiful graphics stuff like that you was you are saying that okay after waking up if you are able to hold your breath for 10 seconds without coughing that means you do not have covid and i was like huh that sounds convincing but who knows who cares 
because it's like okay it does not harm me physically and potentially if i try that but they might harm other people i guess yeah one of the most insidious things about misinformation is that it can be truth adjacent right not not just because there is something to be there is a connection between your your lung capacity and whether you have a severe form of the disease it's an intuitive connection people can kind of see that yeah as you point out it's dressed up in the structure and and the visual language of something that's true why would somebody go through the trouble of spending time designing something so nice that's that they don't have good reason to believe themselves is true they believe it's true somebody believes it's true that gives me a reason to believe it's true this is the cycle of how we think about what is true and what's not it's a social proof cycle and that's why for disinformation campaigns it's sometimes really really hard to dislodge from your mind the notion that something you've seen can't be true or isn't true because it looks and feels just like the truth and again it's truth adjacent yeah and also the reason why i came across this instagram post is because one of my friend who i trust who i think is smart posted this instagram post she reshared this post on her story or maybe on her feed anyways and i feel like oh she's my friend i trust her and then any information that she shares must be true somehow this is, yeah you, you beautifully encapsulate something that i i would love people to understand more about their sharing when you share something online to people who are part of your circle of friends you are telling them i have checked this out and i think it's probably true even if you say i'm sharing this i'm not sure if it's true the fact that you've shared it with them is enough for our brains to say oh it must have some relevance of truth that's why the sharing cycle can be fairly pernicious and one of the things i advise people in the course is not for everything in life but when it comes to public health information information about things that are potentially violent or public safety related maybe don't share it if you don't know or haven't done a couple of simple things that you can do to check the origin of something right right I mean, I don't want to sound so pessimistic, but I feel like as an individual with not a lot of power in politics and not a lot of access to insider information, like let's say if I come across a piece of information about election or maybe about policy, about politician on social media, how likely for me to fact check if that's true? What, what kind of things that I can do to know, okay, if this is true? Because I'm like... On the edge of those info, I'm not privy to what is true, you know. Well, I, I want to talk about two things. Yeah, um, and the second thing I want to talk about <laughs> is is the experience of of Taiwan. Yeah, um, which is the country I'm from. If you don't know, yes. So um, <laughs> the first thing is there are across the world hundreds of fact checking groups. It's often hard to, in the middle of a conversation though, say, hey, how do I fact check this instantly without going to 16 different websites? So there are a couple things that I would suggest that you can do. The first thing that you want to try to figure out, the most reliable way to see whether it's true is see if Wikipedia says something about it. Mm. Wikipedia, you think, is usually pretty it true. Is a it's a yeah. significant, I mean, used, used to be we would never tell somebody source to Wikipedia. Mm. Now it's not perfect by any means. But at the very least, what you're able to see it is the consensus about a particular issue. So you can say, oh, okay, so I've, I've just Googled this and, and, and Wikipedia'd it, and this is what comes up. I know that there's a consensus that's different than what I'm seeing. Okay, that's the first thing. But you can do it very quickly. 
Another thing to do is to look at the source. Almost always, by checking the source, just spending your time figuring the source of this particular claim that you're looking at, you can sometimes, more often than not, very rapidly assess whether somebody who originated the claim has a credible reason for doing so. Mm without having to actually look at the claim itself. Mm. Because how are you going to spend time researching and what expertise do you have or should you have as a normal human being to research a complicated public health claim? That's not what your role in life is. Your own life is as a consumer to make judicious choices. But here's how you make judicious choices, not by trying to find out yourself whether it's true, but by seeing who's propagating these claims who tends to, no, we understand scientists get things wrong all the time and they have biases. This is where I want to talk about Taiwan. Anthony Fauci, another scientist who said, don't wear masks. If you look at the initial population of social scientists and, and epidemiologists who talked about mask wearing at the beginning of epidemics, the ones who said wear masks were all based in guess what country, guess what continent? Asia. <laughs> yes. And the ones who said don't were based in guess what, you know, part of the world. Western country. Yes. Yeah. And, and it is absolutely hard not to see just, you know what, we are not going to listen to the less, the actual lessons of people who have successfully contained similar pandemics before when doing this. We're looking at our own experience and we're just not listening to the way. And one of the things about Taiwan that fascinates me, and I study this a little bit, is the culture of everyone feeling that they have a role to play in being cyber and digitally competent, at least. Oh, I think it goes back to the whole, I mean, I don't want to generalize, but I feel like Asian cultures usually are more a collective society. We live in a society where we we stick together. We don't have the idea of individualism, which is the main concept of Western culture. Like, like let's use mask as an example. I mean, I during this pandemic, I was not in Taiwan, but... I read a lot of Taiwanese people's social media posts. Nobody has ever argued that we should not wear a mask because we have the freedom to, cho to choose if we should wear a mask or not. However, if you look at a lot of uh, Americans who don't want to wear a mask, their argument is it's our freedom not to wear a mask. This is our right. You, you, the government cannot force us to wear a mask. However, I've never seen any Taiwanese have the similar argument. However, Taiwan is also... A, democratic country. We have the idea of freedom, but we don't take that to extreme. When you have you have yeah. a free press, you have free <laughs> I mean, there's Taiwan in in is a it is a completely free and prosperous country by all that. And that's interesting. Thank you for saying it's a country. <laughs> oh, okay, now I'm going to get, you know, now I'm going to get the the MFA in 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 China to start this now. You but, cannot travel to China now. <laughs> now that, I mean, I probably couldn't travel to China earlier, but um Taiwan is a, what am I going to say? Yeah. Well, I, it's, a, it's, it's a country. We have our own election, our own I mean, president. It's, it's, but yeah. it, it is. I mean, the, the political, the, the political culture of freedom there is very, is, 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 is extraordinary and it's, it's flourishing. And in many ways, in both elections and reducing election, outside election interference, and then combating the pandemic, public health authorities were extraordinarily su successful in partnering with civil society and with individuals and communities and groups to contain the pandemic and reduce suffering meaningfully there in a free country. If it can be done, if, if freedom 
of whatever is the arbiter, then you know we're looking at completely the wrong metric, and it's uh, it's very very frustrating to to see that. I try to find out what is behind it, and it's less about this abstract concept of freedom, and more about this abstract but vague sense that there are two sides of the same coin there because one impulse is not a pernicious impulse, which is the sense that people don't like to be talked down to. And Americans in particular have this chip on our shoulder, right? We don't like other people to tell us what to do. That's been part of it. I mean, it's, but the other part is strongly correlated with people who see any sort of in, in the context. And this is a lot of this was promoted by president Trump's sectarianism and, and his just gravitationally cruel and, and, world-changing, promiscuous use of disinformation to harm people. You just brought a really interesting point I never really thought about just now. I mean, I'm all for diversity. I think the more diverse a society is, the better it is. And uh, however, in Taiwan, 99% of the people are Asian. And I don't know if that is actually an advantage in pandemic because you'll feel like, oh, we need to protect our race, which is really different in America. But I, I'm saying I'm not advocating. I'm not protecting those people who are against right. diversity. I'm just saying. And also, I don't know, maybe you have more knowledge about this than me. I wonder if smaller countries have a better uh, position to handle a pandemic like this, like New Zealand or Taiwan, because well, ge- countries isolated yeah. you know, on, on, on islands can help, you know. Like geographically speaking, when you have yeah. a smaller land, it's just easier to manage it, I sure. guess. And also, I was like, the United States is such a big country. And it's basically 50 countries to be precise because every state has their own regulation and their own law on how to combat this pandemic, which is really different than Taiwan, which is just we have one land, one country. Yeah. And... Also, like a news outlet in Taiwan is not as many as the United States. So it's easy for people to know which news outlet can be trusted, which you cannot, because there are not many compared to like the United States. Like each state has their own local news station, and you don't really know is this one gonna be trustworthy or is this one gonna be another disinformation source, stuff like that. Yeah. So I think there is also another difficult, especially for an immigrant like me. America is full of immigrants who don't know uh, the complete history of this country. And they come here and they are trying to figure out how to fit into society. And going back to the news outlet, when I first came here, I didn't know which news outlet I can trust, which I cannot. And nobody teaches me because why would they? Because uh, most Americans, they are born and raised in this country. They know which news outlet can be trusted, which cannot. So they wouldn't bother to teach immigrants or foreigners hey you should not listen to this one you should listen to that one a lot of information that i found on the internet i need to dig in to 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 the history of that news station that media station and see if that one can be trusted which i think is a little frustrating (laughs) was there something that you saw like when you first came here that that you believed and then turned out wasn't true because of that i'm curious something that you saw or a a claim or a news story or something. So, for example, uh, the U- USA Today. Yeah. I think it's a credible source of news, right? Yeah. Credible enough. However, when I first knew about USA Today, it was with uh, one of my American friends, and he told me not to trust USA Today because 
I think he hated the USA Today. Maybe USA Today is too liberal. Is it liberal? USA Today tries to be as mainstream as possible. Yeah, and then my American friend told me USA is USA Today is terrible. Don't trust them. And for the longest time, I was like, okay, if USA cannot be trusted, why、right. am I getting? Notification of headlines from USA on my phone. I was really confused for a long time. And you're also trying to figure out what is it about them that can't be trusted because this story doesn't seem that biased. Yeah, so I need to go online to look. I think there is a website that will teach you if this media is trustworthy, is not trustworthy. If this media is more on the left wing or the right wing, I I forgot what the site is, but. Now I I just need to do a lot of、uh, research on my own before I trust a news site because I did not grow up in this country. I don't know all the relationship, all the history. Is there a equivalent of the New York Times on the right wing, or is there none? The equivalents in terms of influence,、mm. it would be Fox News. The equivalents、mm. in terms of making a good faith effort at trust and trust and trustworthiness. There are individual journalists who are conservative, and there are some small publications, but n- nowhere near as 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 it. And and I do think that people's trust in journalism is something you build at a local level and build upwards. And we've seen over the past fifteen years a diminution of people who serve as reporters and journalists. So this truth-telling army that we had twenty thousand local reporters, they're all gone. They've lost their jobs. So. People are exposed to far less actual reporting in journalism than they used to be. Someone's local paper used to have thirty reporters, and now they have four. Does that make a difference in whether people trust the news? A hundred percent. Yes. I don't know if you remember a documentary came out a few years ago. I think it's a documentary. It was talking about how a wealthy businessman trying to buy out all these local news stations and destroy those news stations because. That businessman knows the power of local news, and and if they, he can destroy those news station, people will only get the information from top down. The only way to rebuild trust in political institutions and I think journalistic institutions is truly to start closest to where people live, and that means local expertise, and that means local reporters to help with the spread and diffusion of news and finding a business model. For how that works, or whether it's simply funding it and being completely, people hate the idea of government funding of the news because it also reinforces the idea of elitism. Right. But if you just spend money and completely divorce the government from it to actually rebuild these papers and give them five years, and you hire twenty thousand journalists locally to be journalists and do what reporting is, which is not just writing. When I'm a reporter. I'm sitting and I'm calling twenty people and reading lots of things and trying to figure out the truth. That's what I'm doing. There's a process. It's not a I'm writing my opinion and then looking and calling people and saying, "Do you agree with this?" Or I'm glossing something else. If you have twenty thousand people actually doing reporting, we're going to make a dent in the trust problem、mm. and the fake news problem. No question. I have a follow up questions on the local news and、uh, the, the the big national news media. Like, let's say. Do you think a college graduate, right after their graduation, they would prefer to work at a local news、uh, company, or maybe they want to work for a big company like the New York Times? Because I'm not in this industry, but I think <laughs> people will assume, oh, working for a big company will be better for your career in the long term. Well, you know, USC's journalism from the Annenberg School trains、uh, a lot of people to work in local TV news, and there is a temptation to try and jump directly to. WNBC or KNBC, 
But starting out small in a smaller market is often, I mean, it's the only route. Um, and it also is how people build careers. And students understand that. By the same token, students who have different aspirations, want to do different things, can jump right in now and start to work at larger institutions much earlier. So it depends. There are a lot of different incentives there. I would always, I still have this sense of, of if you if you can really put your teeth around a beat, you know, a subject matter on a local level and own that subject. Let's take a break. Be right back. Get intimate with Oliver Wong is supported by Dump and Yum Rice Cooker. Do you love eating rice but too lazy to cook it? Yes, that is me. I love eating, but I'm too lazy. And Dump and Young Rice Cooker is my latest kitchen solution. Yeah, so what it does is that it will turn anything white into rice in a matter of seconds. Yes, anything white into rice. This is definitely an amazing product. So I'm a rice lover. I eat rice all the time and I'm very lazy to cook it. You know, you have to wash the rice and wait for the rice to be cooked, which can take about 15 to 20 minutes. Too much work and too much time. But Dump and Young Rice Cooker is my new best friend. So the other day, I was thinking about throwing away a white t-shirt that I no longer wear. Then I'm like, Wait a second, let's turn this shirt into rice. So I dumped the shirt in a dump and yum rice cooker and in five seconds, five seconds, yeah, my shirt was transformed into a pot of delicious white rice. Yes, it can turn anything white into rice. White balloons, white restaurant receipts, white boyfriend or girlfriend. Okay, well, don't put your lover in the cooker. There are other ways to show your love than turning them into rice. Yeah, and I don't think it's gonna fit. Human body is kind of big. Anyways, so Dump and Young Rice Cooker, it's your lazy way to cook rice. Go on dumpandyumricecooker.com to get your cooker now. It is $800 per unit, but all of our Get Intimate listeners, you guys can use the promo code Oliver to get 1% discount. That is $8 off. This commercial is created for entertainment purpose only. The product that was advertised does not exist. This is not a topic. I just feel like Asian gay men is usually considered not as desirable as other race in gay community. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it, is, it is definitely a, a shift in, in topics, but I'm curious to ask you. Yeah, sure. When Grindr took off the feature, oh. allowing p- people to sift their preferences by ethnicity. They did so because they said, well, you know, we want to re- reduce the amount of of active ways for people to discriminate. This yeah. actually kind of gets back to what we're talking about because it's a platform intervention to reduce a real world harm, right? Oh, that's a good, good, good example. So, yeah. but what I heard from a lot of my gay Asian friends was, well, now how do I find other gay Asian people as easily as I did? Mm. It, it had the perverse effect of, I still get horrific screenshots from where people just are horrifically racist and and um and and cruel so i don't know how much of that is actually reduced but now it's also harder for gay asian people to find other gay asian people i i like that grinder is trying to intervene racism but also i feel like people who don't like asian is not going to change just because grinder changed how they've operate their app, they are still going to be people who are against 
dating Asian man, and I guess it's it's kind of hard because you like what you like. If you don't like to date Asian, I don't know how you can change it, or if you have any preconceived notion about dating in Asia, I don't know how you can change it. You know, I just I just wonder whether we're optimizing for the right things to not help them double down on some, you know, preference or quirk that they have, but expand their universe of potential people to do all sorts of things. It was not just, you know, hook up in the grinder culture, but talk to and get to know and network with. And how do we optimize for that? Again, I'd be very curious to know whether the reduction or the taking away of that category actually had the effect, the intended effect that Grinder wanted, which was to somehow reduce the amount of harassment, which is a very laudable thing to do. Yeah. But when you take away that, does it actually do that? Or does it make it harder for like-minded people who who either want to date gay Asian men or other gay Asian men to find gay Asian men? Does it make it harder? But I show my face on Guinder so people know my race. So I think if you are an Asian man who is looking for an Asian man, and if you are not showing your face, you will see my face and you will know I'm Asian. So I don't think that is a problem for me personally. Do people still just respond cruelly and just dismissively in racist ways? Just send me messages like, hey. Or, or if, you, if you send them a message or say hello or tap or whatever... Do some people respond? Recently, I've not. However, I've noticed, I don't, I I think it's quite, it's different. So, you know, Asian men, they are usually considered a little bit more submissive. So I noticed that people who messaged me on their Grindr profile, they will say, hey, I'm looking for a submissive man. And then that's why they message me. So I don't know if they are trying to say, hey, you are an Asian, so I know you are submissive, and that's why I message you. And I don't like that assumption, of course. Yeah. They should be on the other side of you in a podcast, and you grilling them. <laughs> no, but unfortunately, and this is, again, a lesson we can apply to all different platforms, yeah. but human beings are going to find a way to slide in their implicit and explicit biases. So, uh, well, people know about my HIV positive status. I talk about it publicly. So I Which can... is on a huge, on a discrimin- and this is, yeah. Because you on Grindr, you can... You can you yeah. elect to put your status if you... If you, you have you to put your status. And I don't want to lie. So I have to I have to put HIV positive on my Grindr profile. And it's kind of hard because at the same time, I want to be honest. But also I know it's going to decrease how many people are willing to message me yeah. you know there's yeah. um within the gay community still an enormous degree of stigma and bias against people who are hiv positive and a lack of intuitive understanding of what it means to have the virus and uh, uh but be healthy and you also kind of wonder again whether if if one of the things that they really want to do is help get rid of the stigma do they get rid of that? Oh, I was. You reminded me. Yes. So you know, in gay community, there is this question that is asked a lot before having sex: Are you clean? Right. And which means, do you have any STDs, especially HIV? However, if a person asks me, "Hey, Oliver, are you clean?" My answer is gonna be no, because I'm HIV positive. But that does not mean I'm dirty. So my point is, I feel like this kind of language, are you clean, is really dangerous. And it, it just like increased more stigma around STDs and HIV because people with HIV are not dirty. Absolutely not. Yeah. And I think a lot of people lie 
about how often they're tested for all types of STIs in the gay community, right? Oh, I don't know, really. Huh? Yeah, I just have have a sense. And um, if you you go back to the language of disease that has always been used to marginalize and and basically take away the humanity and the sexuality of non-dominant cultures, it's always been couched in the language of cleanliness versus uncleanliness and hygiene right. versus not. If you think about the way that people treated, even when, when Irish people immigrated and crowded in New York tenements, hygiene was always the sort of like dirty Irish immigrants. It's absolute, It's not language that we should be using in the 21st century. A, because it doesn't mean anything. You just need to ask people directly. What is your status? Right. Yeah. When, what's the last time you tested for STIs? What's your status? What is, you know, do you know your viral load? Which is yeah. a reasonable question to ask somebody who is HIV positive. Yeah. Um, but we don't ask those direct questions. Instead, we have the shorthand. Are you clean or not? Which just drags in a really nasty stereotype. Yeah. That brings out the worst in us. So that's, I mean, it's a horrible observation that's great in its character. Uh, that's not something you would notice unless you are positive. Yeah. yeah. It, well, I, I, it's not something I, I would say. You just wouldn't feel the... The, the shame sh of it. Yeah, the way. shame of it. Cause yeah, but you just you mentioned about lying. I was lied to. The person I had sex with told me he was HIV negative, but obviously he was not. That was yeah. horrible. Uh, I th I think people lie about about things related to how often they're tested for everything. Yeah. Well, this conversation took a weird turn. <laughs> it it took a it took a, a a personal turn. But it took a personal turn. But yeah. I think it's interesting because it does help us think about. Again, how we we want to get rid of the stuff that's cruel, and we want to increase the stuff that makes everyone flourish. And so, when we're communicating using apps, how do we do that? And where does responsibility lie? And then, what responsibility do we have to ourselves and to our friends to help create and model these better environments? So, do you think platforms like Twitter, Instagram, Facebook they bear the responsibility to actively seek out? misinformation and stop it? Or do you think the consumers has the responsibility to report those misinformation to the platform? Well, we, we shared the responsibility. Yeah. Um, look at several different functions. One is they need to contain problems that crop up that, that are not anticipated. Hate speech, child sexual exploitation, harmful misinformation that crops up and then deal with it, get rid of it off the platform. They have an obligation to scale their threat intelligence team. They have to anticipate how certain events and cultural twists and changes and political events and political revolutions will change the salience of certain types of information. So it might be in one context, not harmful, but then suddenly it will be. And the better that the companies get at recognizing when it will be salient, the more they can throttle down engagement when they need to do that. The third thing is that platforms have to give humans as many tools as possible to exercise their choice over privacy, over perhaps ad sharing, over what types of content they see, what types of content they don't see, over how they want to engage with a platform. That is where the cooperative part comes in. And then the fourth is they have to cooperate with each other and with governments to enforce laws to people who are habitually or serially offend by spreading misinformation across several platforms, coordinated and inauthentic behavior, and 
continue and enhance their cooperation as well with research and academia, helping to define what a metric of misinformation might actually be. So those four levels, I think, are what we ought to judge a platform for. So I have a friend. He's my good friend, but we are on the different side of political spectrum. And then he is all, all all about freedom of speech. And then he said, if Facebook or Twitter started to regulate what kind of content should be displayed and what kind of content is this、uh, is disinformation or maybe information and should be taken down, then there is not a platform anymore. It becomes a Publication because the platform becomes a place where they can regulate what kind of speech can be tolerated, what kind of speech cannot be tolerated. And I mean, obviously, I'm I like freedom of speech as well, but I feel like my friend's argument is somehow reasonable. But of course, I don't necessarily agree with that. So, what what would you respond to that kind of mentality? Like, we need to support freedom of speech. Look at it from several levels. One is. All right, who has the responsibility, right? Is it the, is it the last mile, meaning, or the first mile, which is the person who originates this thing, this piece of content, or is it the enterprise or the intermediary that they use to distribute it? Do they bear any responsibility whatsoever? If not, why not? But if so, what portion of responsibility do they bear? The other thing is, at what point is it speech? And then, what point is it conduct? Because、mm. speech is something that is very easy to kind of brought, and I think has to be really broadly defined. Because if we crack down on things that we don't like and find harmful or find hurtful, we'll marginalize further, further marginalize people who are already on the short end of the stick. So there's a constant balancing here. Because, for example, if you're speaking speech about sexuality or sex. And I mean, how, how, for example, am I going to know how you in particular are going to react to something, or I'm going to react to it differently? So the question that your friend brings up is very, very relevant, and it's one of the sort of prime questions of our time. The platforms would say that it's very easy to say, okay, suddenly they're, you know, they're publishers. At the same time, publishers have an extraordinary degree of freedom. It wouldn't necessarily mean that they're subject to any fewer Or any more legal liability for restricting speech. In fact, it would give them far more of an incentive to crack down on anything that could be controversial. But how do you create context-sensitive liability? For example, let's say that a big corporation like Facebook has at least the the money, maybe the people, to try and accomplish content moderation to make everyone happy at scale. The problem is only Facebook has the ability to do that because they're so big and they have so many people and so much so much money. No other online platform has nearly the same degree that has the same amount of just sheer resources to throw at the problem.、Uh, you are putting a lot of efforts in teaching people how to identify misinformation and stop the spread, and I think it's really important because, like, this is a digital world. We all need to be more. Uh, digitally savvy, like we need to have the digital literacy. And I remember when I was in Taiwan in elementary school, middle school, high school, we have computer classes. We teach our students how to use computer, how to use software. But I do not recall we teach students how to be more、uh, digitally aware. Like we didn't teach our students how to identify misinformation or disinformation. Like 
It's, it is woefully insufficient. Countries like Singapore mm-hmm. do it very well. Singapore also has a political culture that allows for a very top-down approach that doesn't brook for a lot of dissent at times. And, you know, and, and um, I, I think um, not known for tolerating too many deviations from the orthodoxy, and I'm not comfortable with that. But I am fascinated that in fifth grade in Singapore, people get awards for best cyber hygiene. Ooh. And I, you can't tell me, that you can't mean. look at what Singapore teaches or requires of its fifth graders and find some way to adopt American curriculum to the way that American students want to learn and, and the values, again, tolerance and openness to inquiry and, you know, a, a healthy degree of respect for others and their dignity. That is absolutely doable. I don't know how much of an effect it will have because we we don't do it. Mm. We just don't do it. I, I know teachers who do it, yeah. but we don't do it collectively. I, I'm just suspecting, but I don't know if that is because all the policymakers, they just, they are not digitally literate. <laughs> so they, I don't know. I'm just like, imagine, because I think there was a video like when Mark Zuckerberg was questioned by the Congress and you can see all these Congress person, all these Congress people, they are not, they don't know how Facebook works. And they, they, if those policymakers, they are not smart in social media, they are not smart with digital world, how are we going to expect that we have a top-down education system to teach our students, hey, you need to protect your identity, stuff like that. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I mean, members of, of Congress and, and some of their staff, some members of Congress, because some are very smart about a lot of this stuff, but some members of Congress who have been through our education system and use all these platforms have no idea how any of this works. And it frustrates the tech executives, but it's indicative of of where we are. So you see a lot of performance in theater in these congressional hearings mm. that distract from, okay, let's, let's focus on the problems that we are looking at and then let's kind of try to move forward on them and not go on tangents about things that are a result of our technological literacy. I feel like technology is changing so fast and it's really difficult for any other industry to catch up how fast the technology industry is changing. Like, just like you said, like internet is, has been around for a long time, but right. we, we are just talking about cybersecurity in our education recently, stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's too little too late in some yeah. degree, but yeah. that doesn't mean that you can make a, you can't make a significant difference if you start doing a couple of simple things today. Yeah. So I want to go back to this audio course that you have, the Infodemic course. I noticed something really interesting. The vibe of your narration sounds really meditative and relaxing. You have all this calming music. So it sounds like a meditative journey instead of a lecture. Is that a conscious choice? Yes. It's, it's the message, which is to say that the way to improve your engagement with this world is to take a step back from it and realize that you're engaging and that you have choices. And I encourage people to take mindful pauses with the understanding that when people are engaged mindfully with anything, they're much more likely to engage with it and make 
fewer errors and be more compassionate and be wise, compassionate to themselves and compassionate to people that they know, and then empathetic to people that they don't know. That obviously extends to online and, and, and what what is pernicious about the structure of our online engagements is that they pull us in and make us unmindful. Right. And I think I don't want to say anything bad about those companies, but I feel like the designers might know what they are doing, the designer of the product. It's a very yeah. complex thing. Yeah. I, I have mixed feelings. I do think that the companies get a bad rap in some areas. In others, they are late to the game and should have done things a while ago. Right. But I also think that part of what the companies can do to help is to remind people of their own agency and to give them tools to interact with their content better online. Right. Imagine if Instagram has like, you know, sometimes Instagram will give you a, a an ad. Imagine instead of an ad, how about encourage people to meditate? <laughs> I would love that. Right? <laughs> now, I get ads for meditation apps all the time on my Instagram right. because... Instagram has figured out that I like you love meditation. I like meditation apps, and I so at the very least, what that means is, for example, if you don't want to see political content on your Facebook, or you want to see only content that is reflected by verified, authorized sources or sources that the fact checkers, the independent fact checkers, deem to be credible, you should be able to do that very easily. That is a really informative conversation. Well, Mark, thank you so much for coming on the show. I feel like I learned a lot. I don't know if I told you, I always need approval from like scholar type of people, like professors, because I I want to be perceived as smart person. So I was like, oh, I want my teacher to think I'm smart. So I hope you think I'm smart. But anyway, even if you think I'm stupid, that's fine. Yeah, but thank you. I, yeah. think, I think you're extraordinarily smart. <laughs> yeah, that's why I want you to say. You could have just asked that at the beginning. We could have saved. No. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, well, I hope I can take your class someday in person if you are going to teach in the future. Yeah. You're more than welcome to audit it if, if you can't take it. So absolutely. Uh, do you have anything you want to add? Yeah. If you want to learn more, follow me on Twitter. I'm at Mark Ambender, M-A-R-C-A-M-B-I-N-D-E-R. You can also, from there, go to links to knowable.fyi and the Infodemic Cleanse course, some of the books on national security and other stuff that I've written. And, you know, everyone has a sub stack these days. So there's, there's that there as well. Well, thank you so much for coming. My pleasure, Oliver. Wow, I definitely learned so much from my conversation with Mark. I feel like I just finished a degree in journalism. <laughs> no, I'm definitely kidding, okay? Yeah, it takes four years to get a degree. Uh-huh. It's not just gonna be a two-hour conversation, nope. But, but it's definitely a really insightful conversation. Next time, before I share anything on my social media, I'm going to double-check if the information is real or fake. Yeah, I don't want to spread misinformation. So uh, everybody, all the cuties, if you want to learn more about misinformation and disinformation and how to engage with the information that you receive mindfully, definitely check out Mark's audio course Unknowable. It's called Infodemic Cleanse. And 
Thank you for listening. If you want to support Get Intimate, you can follow us on our Instagram page at Get Intimate Podcast or support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash Oliver Wong Comedy. Alright, thank you so much, everybody. Bye. Let's get intimate.